Welcome to the next level. This is JBL here with my best friends, Sarah Longwell and Tim Miller. Hey guys, happy early Thanksgiving. I'm thankful for you guys. Yeah, I'm just so excited to be Thanksgiving in place here. You know, I'm going to be extremely bored. Um, uh, I'm going to be reading uh, Robert Graves' goodbye to all that because I did. I, JVL put a headline on my article that was very literary and and showed the depths of his smarts, but that's something that I was completely um, unaware of, and that made me feel silly. So I'm going to be reading and um, sitting alone and ordering some takeout turkey. What about you guys? Ooh, takeout turkey. <laughs> Same, just what, you know. What are you doing, Sarah? Yeah, uh, we will. We are going to have not turkey because without the need to have all the trappings of Thanksgiving, we're going to have brisket instead because uh, that's better than turkey. Um, but other than that, I disagree you know, with that choice, Sarah. I that's mean, fine. You know, you're already losing the kind of the the family and the camaraderie and the pomp and to then take away the bird as well. I don't know. I think that could be a recipe for seasonal de- depression. If you left it I'm up to me, I'm going to send you a note on Friday. That's great. If you left it up to me, the, uh, the meal of Thanksgiving would be the cranberry sauce that comes out of the can with the, with the ridges still on it. Uh, stovetop stuffing from a box, which I think is delicious. Okay, well, uh, that, is, that is the best. The best stuffing actually is stovetop. Yeah. And then no just like mashed potatoes, gravy, and then not turkey. This sort of faux woman of the people thing is a nice transition into what I wanted to talk about on my first topic, which is Marco Rubio's critiques of the Biden cabinet. Ooh, ooh. Could you read them to us, Tim? Um, yeah. Uh, I, you, I have it up in front of me if you don't want uh, to. Uh, uh, no, I've got it. Um, Biden's cabinets... Uh, Biden, excuse me. Whoa. Biden's cabinet picks went to Ivy League schools, have strong resumes, attend all the right conferences, and will be polite and orderly caretakers of America's decline. They do not eat cranberry sauce out of the can. I support America's greatness. I have no interest in returning to the normal that left us dependent on China. China. Um. Man, he, he tweets I, from I his so Chinese iPad. With... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so many pro- <laughs> problems with this. Um, you know, there are all the obvious ones people mentioned on Twitter. The fact that the entire Trump cabinet went to Ivy League schools. You know, the fact that being polite is I don't uh, kind of nice. Wouldn't it be? Isn't it? <laughs> isn't it nice to be polite? Uh, wouldn't the person that tweets Bible quotes all the time, you know, like um, you know? Uh, uh, common treatment of their fellow man uh, a nice treatment of their fellow man orderly i could use some orderly so uh, you know this is this um you know kind of bifurcated uh treatment that the democrats are gonna have to figure out a way to deal with um that the the republicans despite always complaining about the fact uh that they don't get treated well by the media have this you know uh, double standard that they get to apply i mean could you imagine if a Democratic senator had tweeted, I cannot believe that Trump's cabinet picks came from state schools. <laughs> it would be savaged by um, the uh, um, offensiveness of attacking the working man. Um, but, but you know, this is where the Republicans have gone now. You know, the party has, just, has made, made this bet on, on, you know, the education gap. 
and they're just going to attack the Bidens for for being elites, and you know they're going to pretend to be faux um, men of the people, and that you know that eat stovetop stuffing. And uh, you know it, it's it's extremely frustrating because it isn't real. You know, like this is not a real complaint. And there there are two complaints I want to get your guys' takes on with regards to the Biden cabinet. One is the Republican complaint, and one is the complaint from the Rose Twitter DSA squad left. And and I will say this about the left's complaint, which is that Biden's cabinet is too centrist. Uh, at least that's something that them, they actually believe. Like, I, I do think that genuinely in their heart, AOC does not want, you know, former DLC centrist deficit hawk Simpson Bowles folks like Bruce Reed being part of the cabinet. I think Bruce is great. Um, but I think they at least genuinely believe it. Marco, like this is all a a work. You know, Marco doesn't actually you know think that it's offensive that cat that that people, you know, who are pedigreed um got jobs that that are uh, uh, reflective of their pedigree, right? Like uh, Josh Hawley doesn't actually care about this stuff. They all went to elite schools themselves. And so like it, it's hard to think about, you know, as we press forward, how to sort of deal with this, you know, bad faith versus good faith um, critique. Um, but uh, despite the fact that the nature of their critiques are different, um, the one thing that they share is that they're both wrong. Joe Biden's cabinet selections have been excellent so far, and they've been everything that we told you that they would be here on the next level and in the bulwark. So wh- wh- which, which one of those things, uh, you know, grinds your gears more? What's your, what's your thoughts on the? Yeah, just I want to read you a text uh, from Senator John Cornyn on this topic. Uh, he personally texted you? <laughs> at Twitter, a tweet. A tweet. <laughs> um, so the AP, the AP had a story, or sorry, Apple News did, the secret consulting firm that's become Biden's cabinet in waiting. And Senator Cornyn tweeted out the story and said, I want to see what foreign countries, if any, they have worked for. The secretive consulting firm that's become Biden's cabinet. So anyway, I think that it's important to note uh, that Republicans are about to realize how much of their moral credibility they have squandered over the Trump years. Like, it is laughable to have uh, Cornyn, who made who allowed Donald Trump didn't you know, had no problem uh, with him putting pressure on a foreign ally who didn't want to see his tax returns uh, despite the fact that he was clearly in debt to foreign entities who never said boo about the very weird relationship that Donald Trump has with Vladimir Putin uh, the way he cozied up to dictators like for them to now act as though they can just go back to playing by normal rules on this is embarrassing for them. Yeah, I, I disagree with you strongly on that. They, they are not going to face any any backlash at all. There is no price to be paid for squandering their credibility because everybody is in their own silo. John Cornyn is from Texas. He could not lose his seat if he tried. Well, there's a difference. I'm sorry. There's a difference between whether they will be held accountable for it and whether they have objectively squandered that moral credibility. Who's going to hear? I I would like to read to you something from uh, our friend Ted Cruz. Okay. Um, so this is Charlie. Put is it he in our a, friend? Is he our friend? 
Go ahead. Charlie put it in his newsletter today, and I want to read the full quote of this video clip from Cruz because it is amazing. If it ends, I'm going to do my my best punch me in the face, Ted Cruz voice. If it ends up that Biden wins in November, I hope he doesn't. I don't think he will. But if he does, I guarantee you the week after the election, suddenly all those Democratic governors, all those Democratic mayors will say everything's magically better. Go back to work. Go back to school. Suddenly all the problems are solved. You won't you won't even have to wait for Biden to be sworn in. All they'll need is Election Day and suddenly their willingness to destroy people's lives and livelihoods. They will have accomplished their task. That's wrong. It's cynical and we shouldn't be a part of it. So when we talk about squandering credibility, somebody who literally says is terrible, (laughs) literally (laughs) says the word, I guarantee you. And then this thing does not happen. After, by the way, saying that he didn't think that Joe Biden was going to win. Um, what, why should anybody ever take anything this man has to say seriously ever again, but they will because he's a United States Senator. Yeah. And this this is like the, this, this is the divide that I'm talking about, right? Like none of these critiques are, do they even think that they're real? I, I mean, it's hard to know, right? Like it's hard to sometimes separate, like whether they're just sort of ensconced in this, like bubble of nonsense um where they all just talk to each other and like convince themselves that things these like the media making up the coronavirus is a true thing or whether they know this isn't true and it's just all a performative act and i think that they sort of swing back and forth between the two of those but like uh, you know it does it does present a permanent challenge which is like how do you deal with that like how do you deal with that critique you know, in contrast to the, you know, AOC critique of, of Biden, um, you know, which is, uh, you know, also, you know, incorrect and, and, um, you know, not right, but at least genuine, right? I, I mean, there, there is this just complete, you know, disconnect between, between the, between the two sides. And it's a, it's not, there's not an easy answer to how to resolve it. So on, on November 11, Fox Business Channel, on Stuart Varney's show ran a graphic in which they listed the probable Joe Biden cabinet appointments. Yeah, I saw this They one. had Elon Omar as the Homeland Secretary, Rashida Tlaib as the Attorney General, Elizabeth Warren as Treasury Secretary, Bernie Sanders as the Defense Secretary, and Andrew Yang as Transportation Secretary. This is November 11th. It's interesting that Yang got thrown in there. I wonder what he had in common with the rest of those folks. None none of this happened. But more than that, there was no possibility that any of this would ever happen. There is no universe in which these people would have gotten appointments anywhere within a Biden administration. These are and some, yet, sorry, on, on November 11th, Stuart Varney is presenting this to his viewers, and there is no price to be paid. Do you see what I'm saying? Like, even the fact of having these things be almost immediately disproved, nobody pays a price for anything. Before you go, sorry, just really quick, I would go further than that. Not only is there no price to be paid, but it worked politically. I mean, I do do think that when you look at some of the drop-off between Biden and the Democratic 
uh, House folks and Senate folks, and there are a lot of things at play there, but some of that is, I think, a genuine belief in that Trojan horse argument, like that it worked, that, that they thought that it would be Elon Omar pulling the strings and not you know, the guy that ran the Simpson Bowles commission, Bruce Reed, and, you know, a bunch of, uh, a bunch of centrist corporate Democrats. Yeah. These are, to me, they're, they're, these are two separate buckets of things that Republicans do that are terrible. One is to criticize the Democrats for, uh, sort of in- unbelievably watered down, not even in the same stratosphere things, uh, that they were unwilling to criticize when Donald Trump did, which were much worse, much more potent, much more egregious. That's 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 one bucket. Then the other bucket of things that they do is what JBL is talking about, which is they run again. They they constantly um, project onto the Democrats something that they haven't actually done, and run against that. Uh, and to say, you know, well, Democrats are going to end the filibuster, pack the courts. Uh, and install Elon Omar into major cabinet posts. They they there aren't they aren't actually talking about the reality of what somebody like Joe Biden would do. Um, and so those are two separate things that Republicans have kind of, um, due to a certain shamelessness and unwillingness to deal with reality, have have created as two of their main strategic endeavors. And they've paid no price for. It. But but the other part of this is Sarah, as Tim said, they don't even believe this stuff. Like that, that's the the thing. Like Ted Cruz didn't believe this. Marco Rubio, whose, whose slogan for his failed presidential campaign was a new American century. He ran as a forking neocon. <laughs> I mean, he ran as the pro Iraq, pro Afghanistan war neocon in the, in the, the 2016 election. These people don't believe any of this stuff any more than, than John Cornyn do or, or. Ted Cruz, Josh Hawley, or any Josh Hawley may be dumb enough to believe it, or Tom Cotton, but they say it anyway. And this is the fact is there is no mechanism through which to hold them accountable or to make them pay any price. And in fact, it works because this is what the Republican voters, all 73 million of them, want to hear. Well, yeah, those are sort of separate things, right? There is a mechanism by which they would be held accountable. Um, if this election had gone differently and if it had been a blowout and they had decisively lost the Senate, uh, then there would be an actual reevaluation. But instead, you know, Donald Trump got, uh, what, 10 million more votes than he did last time? Um, and so it appears to them like they just have no incentive for change. Because you're right, it is about the voters, ultimately. Uh, the geography of the Senate insulates them entirely. Tom Cotton cannot lose his job. Josh Hawley cannot lose his job. Marco Rubio probably can't lose his job. I guess it's theoretically possible. Ted Cruz can't lose his job. I mean, this is... The, what, what is the mechanism for accountability in a world where everything is gerrymandered out to, to the asymptotes? Well, I mean, I think this goes to what your next topic is, JBL. I mean, which is, I don't, I don't look, I don't know what the mechanism is because this is, this is working. And, um, and, and I, and I think frankly, um, you know, there, there's room to grow (laughs) with this strategy (laughs) for Republicans, I would say, um, within, uh, within the electorate as it, uh, 
as, as it stands now. And so I, I don't think that there's any reason to believe that you'll see a change of behavior. Now, I, I don't, that's not necessarily, to, doesn't mean that, that, that they'll, you know, run a complete, we won't work with Biden on anything strategy. I think that remains to be seen, but, I, but as far as like their political posturing, uh, I think that treating the Biden cabinet as, you know, pedigreed far left, you know, um, extremists, uh, from you know the the you know Harvard circles that want to you know get rid of the police and let Antifa run wild. I mean, I just I think that they're going to stick with that. Is it a problem for the conservative echo chamber that nobody in Biden's cabinet so far could be picked out of a lineup, except for maybe Janet Yellen? Although probably not even. I don't even know the people remember. She what cannot she was be picked like. out of a lineup. I mean, they, there are, there's a whole list of Democrats who these people have, you know, the people who listen to Fox and OAN have their visages in, in, you know, laser etched onto their retinas, like Rashida Tlaib and Elon Susan Rice Rice and all that stuff. Uh, They, if Ron Klain sat down next to them on a bus, they wouldn't know who he was. Right. Yeah. I I think that it's potentially. Is that a problem? For, or no, I mean, do they not need to live in that? I mean, can they just pretend that it's Elon Omar? <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know that it is. I mean, look, I think that Joe Biden has done the right thing. He did everything that we said that he was going to do. Um, he has not bent and wavered to, you know, putting somebody into the cabinet that was going to create a big fight in the Senate. I think that's good. And if you look at the fact that his, you know, Department of Homeland Security Secretary Mayorkas is literally a Jewish Cuban refugee. Um so, you know, he didn't let the fact that that Miami-Dade was, was literally his worst county in the country, um, you know, impact that. I mean, this is, it's all, um, you know, olive branches. And that's, you know, that's the other thing, by the way, that makes the Marco thing so gross for me. It's like, you can't even, you can't even acknowledge and congratulate a Cuban refugee, like one of you know, you know, so like somebody that's like your family, like many people in his family, you know, that, that he can't even just have a moment of personal comity over, uh, um, you know, how great it is, what, how great this country is that, that we could, that somebody who was, you know, a political refugee could, could, could be rise to the level of the cabinet. But, um, you know, look, if you look at the rest of these people, Tony Blinken, I mean, Avril Haines, and this is all mainstream, center left folks um it it was it was smart i think it it is biden's only best hope for you know continuing to hold his coalition together going into a midterm um and and so i think biden's doing the right thing but i I don't think that that changes the republican playbook at all he's just not he's just making a little harder on him but won't fox just make other people famous i guess is my main point yeah, maybe they will. Or maybe Fox is going to be, you know, fighting a civil war with Newsmax. I mean, this is so so let's um, if we have anything else to say about Biden, we can do that. Otherwise, I'd like to move on to the future of uh, Fox. Did you guys read the New Yorker Isaac Totner interview with uh, Chris Ruddy? No, I did with great relish. So, uh I, I am amazed that people like Chris Ruddy agree to sit down for these interviews with Chotner. It's it that's I, I just can't understand why they think that this could possibly work out well for them. But uh, you know, he did. And Chotner basically takes him apart and reveals him to be uh 
an absolute I don't know what is what is even the the word for I mean not even a snake oil salesman but just a fraud who is in it to take advantage of the rubes and uh it's wild stuff would you would you can agree you, can Tim? you tell us more Tim can you can you yeah, I mean, basically the out. short of it. So Chris Ruddy, for, for anybody who doesn't know, I'm just going to give you just a really quick background because I've had the displeasure of uh, having a couple of expensive lunches with him at at, at various hotels uh, because he's just uh, that kind of guy. When I was Jeb's communications director, he's the kind of guy that, you know, buys people that are going to be in power lunch in the hopes that they, you know, do favors for him in the future. Um, that's the kind of operator that Chris Ruddy is. So uh, he goes all the way back to the 80s. Um, was a conservative journalist, um, you know, in the print days, uh, uh, started Newsmax originally uh, as print, um, specialized in Clinton uh, uh, paranoia. Um, he wrote, I believe, a book, maybe not a book, maybe just an article. We're going to have to fact check that on the possibility that the Clintons killed Vince Foster. I believe um, that never stopped him. And this goes to JVL's point. This is a longstanding problem here. Like, you know, people don't get held to account for, for things like this. Um, the Clintons did not kill Vince Foster in case anybody was wondering for a fact check on that, but started Newsmax um, uh, was a friend of Donald Trump. Just Newsmax is based in South Florida for, so from just around like Mar-a-Lago. He must've been a Mar-a-Lago member. Um, and then Newsmax, you know, created this TV program that like nobody watched up until a month ago. Um, uh, Sean Spicer works there. Uh, and, and so he does this interview with Chotner where Chotner is, is basically trying to get, you know, slowly trying to walk him into this trap of, of admitting that he realizes that mass voter fraud didn't happen and that his network is lying to their viewers and the fact that his network refuses to call Joe Biden president-elect Biden is just a scam for for odd for eyeballs um, to to wedge against Fox, and, and like while Chutner's trying to be cute and like go go at him from the side after like the fourth question, Chris Ruddy just says it. <laughs> He's just like, "This is great for business. I don't know what to tell you. Like everybody, the news cycle is red hot right now. Newsmax had one million viewers in the hour last night in our in our peak hour." You know, it's been our best time ever. Um, Donald Trump said it like we're just covering the news. If the president thinks that there's mass voter fraud, we're going to we're going to talk about it. And that's great for Chris Ruddy. And that's great for Newsmax. And that's great for the the news business. It's amazing. It's absolutely. And he says that their editorial policy is to support the president. That's right. That's what he says. Our our editorial policy is to support the president. So it's a. It's amazing. And this is the future. So, Sarah, you I wasn't there for the entire live stream last week, but I was there for much of it. And it looked like you were doing your JVL impression. You mean in the sense that I was despondent? Yeah, I like. Yeah, that's a good look for you. (laughs) I don't like it. Um, I like to find silver linings. I like to be the optimistic one. Um, But the Republicans... um, since Joe Biden clearly won the election, which was now several weeks ago, uh, have been abhorrent. And they have even exceeded my very low expectations of them. Um, And I am, uh, I think it's true. I've never quite bought into 
the your vision of just the extent to which people are willing to live in an unreality. Um, and, and but I think it's not that I don't think that it does happen. It's that I think you and I sort of argue over how big and how big an audience there is for that. Um, but the Newsmax Fox News rift. I mean, you are watching Fox News basically beg people almost like if you watch Laura Ingram the other night in her angle, she's oh, like, yeah. she's like, I can't lie to you. I'm not going to lie to you. Like this is over. Now they're still doing this dance. Like Tucker Carlson still says this election was unfair. There was a tremendous was amount of fraud. Um, but they're they're Cause they're basically trying to walk this line between reality and sating this beast that they've created that wants to live in unreality. Well, and but- Tucker says the fraud is because the social media companies and the, the liberal media were rigged against Trump and because the, the pandemic created the system for mail-in ballots. So they, they won't say that there was actual election fraud. Cause there wasn't. But they dance around all these other things were fraud and all these other things were rigged in this network. So you see what I'm saying? Like they it's this very lawyerly done, which is the same thing that Ingram's doing. I don't think Hannity has taken that line yet, though. But Ingram doesn't say that Joe Biden won or that he's president, just that he'll be sworn in. Right. Uh and so my argument has always been like, well, look, these voters are going to be up against the gravity of reality, which is that Joe Biden won. He won by, you know, relatively large margins uh, when you total it all up, you know, in terms of the number of states that he won. But there is an astonishing number of people who are because you have people like Chris Ruddy who are so cynical that it is nothing more than a business proposition to fill people's heads with poison and the idea that Donald Trump has not lost this election. Um, I have a, I am, I am really concerned because it's not about the Republican party anymore. It's about what does this do to the country? What does it do to our faith in elections? What does it do to our ability to be a great democracy, uh, a beacon of hope around the world? Because, you know, we live in reality and there's just a lot of people now who don't, and it's not just, you know, the weirdos in the Republican party who are doing this, like Ted Cruz and like, like Sean Spicer. Ted Cruz is weird. Yeah, I, you know, I know Ted Cruz is weird, but like, like Lindsey Graham, like former normal people from before in the before times um, are now like all in on the Newsmax line. And like Sean Spicer, Sean, like Tim, you know, Sean Spicer. Well, like we've all had occasion to meet Sean Spicer back in the day when like the world was normal. And he was the head of the RNC back. And like I was watching the thing I was watching on Newsmax was was um, it was rights. I believe, and Spicer and like the Newsmax host, like that's who it's populated by. Like the former people who used to be normal are now all living in Newsmax world. Not to mention what's his face that got had a Me Too problem. Halperin. Halperin now lives over there. Like yeah, you would has, have seen all these people on a normal news station five he has years this ago. Grimace on his face this whole time. Halperin knows, um, but like he has got no other choice. Um, yes, no. Spicer is the host now. Spicer has a show on Newsmax. My former boss. Um, yeah, I mean, he was just your prototypical average, you know, oversized khaki wearing Republican hack. You know, um, uh, you know, might not have necessarily wanted to hang out with him, but was right in the middle of the bell curve. But this is what the middle of the bell curve is now, right? I, I just, I, I want to take a second. Like a million viewers. 
for a, for a show and we're taking Ruddy's Ruddy's um you know word for that so maybe he's exaggerating a little bit but like that's a that's a that's a really that's a lot in this day and age of a fra- fractured media environment like that's a lot a lot that's more it's than a third of a fox yeah it's more than some cnn and msnbc shows get right um yeah, the msnbc five o'clock hour on a saturday doesn't get a million viewers even close on a yeah. saturday I, I mean i wonder if on a friday if it does i'd, I'd have to go look at it ahead. i don't think every hour on msnbc and cnn get a million viewers um uh on weekdays um so you know, I mean, th- this is deeply concerning. I had a friend, um, non-political friend, whose mother was like, you know, kind of quasi-liberal, but got you know sort of radicalized by the by the defund the police stuff. You know, called me yesterday and said that she doesn't believe that Trump actually lost and has like gone QAnon. You know, like this is just that's just one anecdotal point, but this is you, know, you can see that this is seeping into all of you know uh, uh, into everybody's lives, and and. You know, there is no way back. There is no way back if 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 we can't get people to live in reality, right? I mean, like that. That's just this. Like how how Trump got here in the first place was people's willingness on the right in the right media ecosystem to live outside of reality. And if it's gotten worse than that, then the output is going to end up being worse. So, if I could take us to a darker place, because it is right. almost Thanksgiving. Uh, <laughs> Oh, it was pretty dark. I just, I just said we were going to get darker than Trump. So, how we, much darker are you going to take it? We do not live in reality because we are not required to, because of our decadence as a society, and the fact that you can run around. Excuse me, just really quick. Sarah is not decadent. She's eating canned cranberry sauce. <laughs> stovetop stuffing you accuse me of faux posturing on that that is like i'm from central pennsylvania like this is this is how this is who i am no you're a woman of the people i know i'm just teasing stovetop is awesome uh no this is look when you can run around and hold down a job and pay a mortgage and have a family and raise kids and believe that there is a satanic death cult run by bill gates and oprah winfrey that is trafficking in pedophiles and uh has a kill room in the basement of a dupont circle pizza parlor then you are living in a in a universe which has been set up to be so soft around the edges that you don't have to be a serious person in order to make your way through the world right that's decadence that's literally the the definition of decadence and uh i see no reason to believe that we will encounter anything uh, at any point, well, look, if, if if the forking pandemic wasn't enough to make people believe that there was actually a pandemic and for a large percentage of the population, a very large percentage of Republicans, it was not the, the, the fact of a quarter million body bags was not enough to make them believe reality. Then what is it that could? Because I think the only thing that could is something like the road. You know, like if we wind up in a post-apocalyptic future, <laughs> then maybe they would be forced to believe reality. But, you know, this let's, let's right. I, I, just, I, just, I have to just cut on this pandemic point. I, I mean, after all the ch- talk about this and all the, you know, um, feeling that, that the pandemic was the thing that was going to kill Trump, that he didn't even try to pretend to resolve it. Like at the end of the day, if you look at the election, I mean... I think that you could make a decent contrarian argument that on balance, the pandemic helped him. (laughs) I mean, like they did, you know, there there are big swaths of 
the country where this just desire to pretend like the pandemic isn't happening and open everything up led, you know, sort of fed this culture war that was benefiting Trump and that was moving people in his direction. Right. And, and so, yeah, I mean, you're right. A, a quarter million people. I just, I literally, I don't ever, uh, th- this just shows you I'm giving these anecdotal examples because I don't see anybody. I'm like sitting alone in my greenhouse and I just, I don't see anybody, but I had one call with my friend, his mother is queuing on. Uh, I saw, I had talked to one um, uh, the producer for a TV hit and, and he was like, He's like poking me and saying, "So, are, have you actually have you actually met anybody that's got COVID? <laughs> like, do you know anyone that's died from COVID?" And, I, and I'm like, "I God, I know where this conversation's going." So, yeah, I, 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 I'm with you, Jamie. I, it's crazy that the virus, um, which is now going to get worse and worse, you know, over the next month or two, has not been the thing that shook people out of it. Before all this, I always said maybe the thing that will shake that will get us back to normal, that will shake people back to reality is some exogenous outside event that causes a lot of pain. And like that happened and it got worse. Yeah. Yeah. This is the, you know, it's funny you say that. I, whatever, I, I don't need to go into that. Um, but I, I had a, we had a zoom call with a, our, our financial planner a couple months ago and he began with saying you know, this sort of laughing, joshing. So are you making it through the <laughs> pandemic? You know, and he's like air quoting <laughs> and we were like, yeah, we're, we're hanging in there. Thanks. And he goes, yeah. Have you met anybody who's gotten it? And we are like, well, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, do you know anybody who's died? And we're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We've had a couple family members die. And he goes, well, were they really old? We're like, well, one of them was, one of them was, was actually pretty young. And he's like, well, but did they have comorbidities? Did they have pre-existing? And then it was just this, like, this. <laughs> this you know, didn't like, really happen. He kept they, going after you said the he, death. At least the guy I was talking to once he read that I wasn't with him sort of diverted the combo. No, this guy kept, he just kept going. Well, you know, did they, are they sure it was COVID when they died? Like, <laughs> Like this, it was, it's this insane thing. Here's here's my question. I and I'm really fixated on the the question of Biden's legitimacy, not because uh, I actually care what what Republican voters think about this, but because I believe the posture of Republican institutions will be dictated by what the voters think. And so I have a pair of questions for you both. The first of which is, what percentage of Republican voters will need to believe? that Donald Trump was the actual winner in order to force Republican elites to also take that position. Do, do you understand what I'm asking there? And then the the 1B question is, what percentage when we get to January 20, because there'll be a lot of polling by then, what percentage of Republican voters or Trump voters, if which is a better way of asking that question, will say, that Donald Trump actually won. Sarah? Well, it really is. I mean, I don't know about the percentage, but let's say it's half. I mean, the thing that's going to force the hand of elite Republicans isn't actually quite the size, but like how many primary voters uh, believe this? And is it going to be the kind of thing where crazy people can primary otherwise normal people, uh, which is which is, I think, the phenomenon that we're seeing happen in in our politics by saying, I believe Donald Trump won. And 
and that that becomes a litmus test where primary voters say, I'm going to vote for the guy who said that Trump won. And then semi-normal Republican who's living in a world where Joe Biden's the president uh, is pulled further to the right to try to stave off the primary challenge. And that's how you get uh, a totally capitulate, a, a, a Republican Party that is totally capitulating to that narrative. Because notice that we don't even bring up the possibility that somebody like Ted Cruz could be primaried from the left by a Republican who says, oh, come the fuck on. Yes, Joe Biden got more votes. Joe Biden won. Right. Right. That's not possible. We don't we don't view there as any liability for Ted Cruz or Marco Rubio or any of these guys to say uh, they could say, yeah, Donald Trump won in a landslide. It was fixed. It was rigged. That does not present any danger to them. Yeah, right. that's right. I saw an interesting rule of thumb stat, is, which is this is going to be the number that I use going forward until I see a new stat um, that, that I think is better. But um, Morning Consult did a poll of all of, of, of 2024, which is ridiculous. Like Trump's Trump's at like 54% or something. But I think that given all that's happening in the news, it's hard to really get people to genuinely project who they'll vote for for president in four years. But, but there, there was one uh, poll item in there that really caught my eye. And it was the favorable favorability rating of Mitt Romney uh, among Republican voters. All of the other big name Republican voters or Republican Republican politicians were like 80-10, You know, they were all generally popular with a small number of people that disliked them. Romney's was forty favorable, forty two unfavorable. And, and I think that is about as good of an encapsulation as you're going to get over what percentage of Republicans in the party are either eh, kind of reluctant Trumpers or just going along with it or just genuine partisans who will like anybody that puts on the elephant hat versus how many are Trump dead enders. So it's a, basically a 50-50 proposition where about half, you know, and then there were 10% undecided. But but about half of the people that had an opinion of him didn't like him. And I think that's right. So about half of the party um, is not going to like anybody who says Donald Trump um, actually got defeated handily. Right. Like that's I think that's a, that's your general rule. And thumb. so if it's half, Tim, then what does the party have to do? Pretend. Right. I mean. So they will have to pretend publicly, yes? Yeah, yeah. I think this should be the first question asked of every elected Republican for the next four years. Did Donald Trump win the election? Right. Why why not have that be the lead question? And just make them answer it over and over and over and over again. Hmm. You're not going to like the answer, I think, from a, a lot of people. The one thing that I think is is different, you know, when you talk about my despondency in the future of the GOP conversation, I think one of the things that I hadn't quite anticipated, um, and I'm not sure why I didn't think about it, uh, but, you know, when we talked about, we all knew Trump wasn't going to let go of his grip on the party, right? We knew what he would do. But I think in all of our minds, the way that we talked about it was, well, he's going to set up a TV station or some kind of media entity, and he's going to continue to exercise control by tweeting, and you know, everyone's going to have to kiss his ring, et cetera. The thing I had not thought about hard that now looks more and more like a real thing that might happen is Donald Trump running again in 2024. Because the extent to which he becomes the de facto nominee in 2024, that is a different proposition than him just like taking pot shots from the sidelines. If like, only you had somebody in your life who had been telling you for you two didn't years. Wait, though, or you two didn't, people. You guys did not talk about him running again in 2024. All the I time. Did. 
all the time. Literally, I said all the time that he he declares that he's running for president right away. You could Google me. Okay, I've written That's this okay, in Sarah. several. I've written this several times. I'm making my skeptical face at that on the Bulwark.com and other publications where I've moonlit. <laughs> I'm happy to send you multiple links. That's okay. Continue, Sarah. So what do you think? So he's uh, like, no doubt he announces, right? Because that's the best way for him to remain relevant. And for people like Newsmax, right, who become relentless, their whole raison d'etre is to be supportive of the president. That gives them an entire reason for being like an entire and, and an audience, right? This comeback of Donald Trump. And that's why, right, to the extent to which he is looms large as like somebody who would run for another term, that forces people even more so into the posture of not being able to move on and say that he actually lost. Because yeah. the whole premise of his next campaign is that this was stolen from him. And so you have to be bought into that. Yeah. And uh, and it'll be amazing. And what does, what does Fox do in that situation? That's the worst of all worlds for Fox. See, here's the thing, though. I think that, and, and I, we should get on to uh, like what the Sarah's topic because I think it's super important. But I, I, like my last thought on this is 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 like I, I think that they can get away with this two step JVL. I, this is why it's not going to be satisfying. I, I wrote about this in the article about Rudy's insane press conference about how this is you know we sort of live in this uncanny valley, you know where like they're they're making this deadly serious charge but it's so ridiculous that like republicans don't feel like they really have to be held to account for it i mean i think that if they're asked the question you asked over the next four years they can they make a little joke about it you know it's just like oh you know it's a one big troll like people who are in on the troll you know like comfortably smug and the mitch mcconnell staff like we'll think it's funny to pretend like Donald Trump won, and you know, uh, readers of their uh, of their websites. Some of them who are you know the college educated ones will enjoy the troll. College Republicans will enjoy the troll, not not recognizing that like literally millions and millions of people don't understand that it's a troll and think that Donald Trump seriously won and that Antifa stole it from them, and 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 the media because it's so preposterous, like. Uh, can't wrap their heads around how to hold these Republicans accountable for that point. And, and so like their jokes just, just sort of are like water off a duck's back and like some journalists send snarky tweets about it and then it, we move on. And I think that's just, that's just, you know, the sort of um, in between place that we're stuck right now. It's not in between. It's the bad place, Tim. Where we are is the bad place. Uh, Sarah, would you like to talk about Michigan? Because I get the sense that you're gonna you're gonna close us out with a little bit of optimism, a little bit of rah <laughs> rah, stand up, salute the flag type stuff. I can't USA. help it. I can't help it. <laughs> so here's the thing: this is gonna be a, a Sarah's always right with a caveat. Um, so my argument through, and I had just had lots and lots of people saying Donald Trump's not gonna accept the results of the election, and my response was always. Well, he'll have to, you know, Republicans aren't going to let him just, you know, make it up that he won. Like that seemed that just seems so preposterous to me. Uh, but of course, that is ultimately what he's done. And Republicans in many ways, especially at the federal level, have allowed him to do it. But the strategy was so haphazard that what it ultimately came down to, what it required for him to pull it off was the acquiescence not of federal Republicans in Congress, 
but of local Republicans in these individual states. And so it came down to a bunch of people that we've never heard of before. Nobody'd heard of Brad Raffensperger in Georgia before this whole thing started. But Georgia was certified at the end of last week because Brad Raffensperger handled himself perfectly. He he called for a hand recount, which he got, which did find some additional votes, not nearly enough to come close to overturning the election. And uh, Donald Trump called him a rhino and tweeted at him. Kelly Loeffler and, uh, you know, Doug Collins and Purdue all called for his resignation. And the guy fought back, did his job, stood firm and said, I'm a rock ribbed Republican. I wanted Donald Trump to win, but this election was run well. And here I stand. I can do no other. I'm going to certify this election. And he did. Which then meant we all turned our attention to the next. And, and really, it's sort of a, a crazy. It was crazy in the way that it happened because Michigan, the state, the swing state that uh, Joe Biden won by the most votes, I believe it was 154,000. The Republicans had decided they had this plan that one of the things that they could do is just put pressure on uh, very local people, the canvassers, not to certify the election, therefore buying more time where we lived in this electoral purgatory so Donald Trump could continue to push levers to see if anything would break forward, break through, right? And they, they also had this talking about faithless, you know, not it's not faithless elections, it's actually just like sending alternate slates where the states say, uh, yeah, Joe Biden got the most votes, but we're sending uh, electors for Donald Trump. And in Pennsylvania, they didn't do it. But then it came down to Michigan. And Michigan, uh, to certify the votes, they've got these, these people called canvassers. And their jobs are just to like rubber stamp what the election board sort of certified. Like, hey, got these votes. Here's our report. Certify it. And then the state certifies. But Donald Trump and the Republicans, including people like Ronna McDaniel, were putting pressure on the local party to just not certify. And there was this incredible moment I watched. Did you guys watch the canvasser meeting no, in Michigan? No, I did not. It was four hours long and it was riveting. It was four people, two Dems, two Republicans, whose job it is to certify this election. And all there'd been rumors flying around. And so Tim Alberta's got this long form piece. It's amazing. Everybody should go read it in which he does the TikTok of all the pressure that was being applied by Republicans on these very local people that you've never heard of, on these two Republicans not to certify. And I watched uh, the whole thing. And uh, at the end of the day, it came down to one guy, a local Republican. Uh, his last name is Van Langeveld. Um, and uh, so he's on the board of canvassers. He's also an attorney for the Republican Party in the state. And people thought this guy was going to flip, that he was just going to not certify the election. And there's this other guy, Shinkus. Or is it Shinkus or Shinkle? Anyway, there's- I'll, I'll effort that while you talk. Great. Uh, there are two Republicans, and they're just getting blown up by the party to not do it. And people think they're going to get this done. Donald Trump has called people, the legislators from Michigan, to the White House. He has summoned them to obviously put pressure on them to not certify this election. And so, so you have this meeting where the two Democrats are going to certify. And then they basically let everybody from the state come in and talk. So you've got the head of the, this woman who's the head of the state uh, Republican Party yelling about fraud and how they shouldn't certify these results. You've got all these other people, you know, coming in to say why they have to certify. It was like, it, it really, it was, it was sort of inspiring to watch Democracy in Action 
And this guy, Van Lankveld, goes, gives this really important talk at the end before he certifies where he talks about how we are uh, we are a country of laws and not of men. And the questions that he's asking the people who are testifying is about the law, about the fact that he has an obligation to certify. And anyway, at the end of this drawn out process that goes on and on, he votes to certify and it's over. And Donald Trump loses again, loses Michigan again. But it is about these people who we've never heard of who stood up and did the right thing. Ultimately, it was the Repu- was Republicans, just not the Republicans I thought it would be. Um, but it was people who've never had this kind of scrutiny, never had this kind of uh, pressure on them before in their lives, whose families are getting death threats, whose kids' schools are being put online, who stood up and did the right thing. And because I can't help myself, I still find these people inspiring. And democracy was held together uh, by their bravery. Sarah, the other canvasser was Norman Schinkel. Schinkel, yeah. And Norman Schinkel abstained. He abstained. That's right. He's a very Trumpy guy. He had actually sung the national anthem at the most recent Trump rally in Michigan. So, you know, some Republicans stood up and did the right thing at the local level. Finkel is Einhorn. Einhorn is Finkel. And another half the Republicans did the right thing. And half the Republicans literally truckled to Trump. (laughs) So this is, seems to me to be a very thin read to hang hope for our country on like, Hey, only half of the Republican party at the hundred percent local part of the Republican party, at the federal level. uh, And most of the Republican parties at the state level, but at the local level, only half of the Republican parties, people who have like really no interest in futures in, in politics, were willing to subvert the law and try to overthrow an election. No, this guy did want to have a future in Republican politics. He's like 40 years old. He's like our age. Yeah, but but he's a lawyer and he's a canvasser. I mean, this, this guy was never going to wind up in the Senate. If you're at 40 and you're just like a canvasser in Michigan, you're not... You know, your your career is as a local Paul, not a not a national. The point is, the point is, even in this inspiring story, <laughs> there is the other guy on it who wouldn't stay, even though, again, his his vote was symbolic with Lang, Van Langelfeld's doing his thing. Schinkel was free to do whatever he wanted to. Right. He could say, look, I I just had to stand up and vote with him because solidarity, blah, 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 blah. And he said, no, thanks. I'm abstaining. Go Trump. Yeah, I, I, I'm going to cut a middle ground here as a, as a typical rhino squish and share Sarah's uh, emotional, um, you know, makes me feel good inside going into the holiday feelings about Aaron Van Langeveld. And God bless him. Um, and, you know, we do have an, uh, some great people in this country. And I'm happy that he stood up. And I think that that is great. And we should send him a cookie bouquet and, um, you know, he should put on his America hat and play the Donald Trump, you're fired playlist that I made. And and I think that he is a great American. Um, Where I, what what bothers me about this story is that there's another category of people out there on, on the internet and, you know, in in the pundit class who, who use Van Langeveld's decision as proof that the system held 
that like that this gr- our great American democracy of checks and balance and diffused powers was proven right, and that all of the people who were unnecessarily concerned and alarmed throughout this whole process were proven wrong. And I just I look at this story and I think, I mean, it took everything. It took every person and group that was involved in trying to defeat Donald Trump uh, in order to stamp this guy out. Like we needed to beat him and then we need to advocate to uh, uh, ensure that people followed the rules to ensure that he, he remained defeated. I mean, in Michigan, he was defeated by three points and we still had to go through this rigmarole circus and we still had the republican party trying to push for it and so like my take when i read this is is thank god for every person not just langeveld but everybody else who who like put themselves on the line over five years to try to stop donald trump and that this does this proves nothing about how the system held the, the this proves is that Yes, we have are you know we are blessed with a system of diffuse powers, but yes, this also required um, uh, you know moving mountains in order to stop this guy, and um, and and I just I get very angry when I see the sort of dispassionate ivory tower tweets from people that didn't put anything on the line, you know, saying that you know not being concerned was the right thing to to do all along. Yeah, co-sign that hard. I and I mean this not. I, mean, I I actually don't care about the tweets at all or anything like that. But I mean this as a very a very serious question. I do not understand how anybody could look at what just transpired over the last four weeks, three weeks, and not come away understanding that our system is weaker than and more vulnerable than we suspected. Now you don't have to go all the way to me. You know, to where I stand to say like, boy, we're in trouble. But I just don't understand how you can look at what happened and not have the conclusion be, yes, these things are more tenuous than I imagined. Totally. Right? Is that hard? Like, agree, hard to agree yeah. with that. And, and even know. if it's only 5% more tenuous, right? You, you know, you, you don't, again, you don't have to go all the way to where I'm at. But I, I think the only, the only rational conclusion is that the system is not as strong as we believed it to be. Yeah. I, th- I just think, and this is repetitive, but if this was a closer election, this it very well could have fallen. You know, and if this really, you know, came down to 80,000 votes that could potentially have been disputed because of the, you know, technicalities of the may of the, you know, the naked ballots or whatever, I, you know, absolutely. And, and, you know, our friend Jamie Weinstein has a podcast where he interviews folks. I was listening to his interview with, um, uh, uh, with Rich Lowry yesterday. And, you know, he asked, I think he asked the right question, which is watching all of this is your take that if Donald Trump was able to pull off a coup that he would have been, that he would have done it like he would have, you know that he would, would if he could have picked up a phone and made the michigan you know folks flipped would he have done it 
and like rich kind of stammers and says like i don't know the answer to that but the fact that i don't know is concerning and and you know to me i think that I answer the answer is to clearly that. yes yeah <laughs> yeah all the rest of us know the answer to that which is yes and and i think that it would have potentially i agree with you jvl i think it showed that there are vulnerabilities i think you can you can have both ideas in your head at the same time that yes thank goodness we have a system of diffuse decision points and of powers and checks and balances while at the same time it sure seemed more vulnerable than we would have thought five years ago yeah all right we've run super long yet again we're always running long uh Guys, anything else before we get out of here? Happy Thanksgiving. I'll take that as a no. Happy Thanksgiving to both of you. Everybody listening, happy Thanksgiving to you guys. Thanks for being with us on this journey. Thanks for standing up for America. Thanks for fighting the fight the way you guys have uh, in your own own ways everywhere. It's going to be a weird, tough Thanksgiving. And I would just say this in, in all earnestness. Uh, if, if you know somebody who's struggling this Thanksgiving, just reach out to them. Pick, pick up the phone, send them a text, uh, and just let them know that uh, they're not alone and there is a future out ahead of us. So that's all I've got. Happy Thanksgiving, Sarah. Happy Thanksgiving, Tim. Love you both. Amen to that. Thanks, JBL. Peace. Bye, guys. Bye.